Welcome to Create Your Bliss with Nika Annan. Today we have the wonderful opportunity of speaking with Dr. Claudia Welch. Dr. Claudia Welch is a doctor of oriental medicine, an Ayurvedic practitioner and educator, and the author of several books, including Balance Your Hormones, Balance Your Life, Achieving Optimal Health and Awareness Through Ayurveda, Chinese Medicine and Western Science, and How the Art of Medicine Makes Science More Effective, Becoming the Medicine We Practice. Dr. Welch lectures internationally on Oriental and Ayurvedic medicines and women's health, bringing a depth of knowledge and a sense of joy to her presentations. She has served on the teaching faculty of the Ayurvedic Institute, the Kripalu School of Ayurveda, the Southwest Acupuncture College, and Acupuncture Seminars. Welcome, Dr. Welch, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation, Nika, and it's nice to be with everybody. Wonderful. So would you share with us what you do and maybe talk a little bit about this wonderful range, Oriental Medicine, Ayurvedic, and the focus on women's health, which I think is really wonderful, and I also want to honor the fact that it's focus on health, not on illness. Oh, good point. Good point. Um, well, you know, when people ask what I do, it's just, it's a, it's a funny question to answer because <laughs> there's such a wide range and uh, of, of things that I do. And, you know, when you're looking at creating your bliss, I, I just, if I, if I think about when I was a kid thinking about where I would end up or, or looking towards where I would end up. I would never have been able to answer that question. No, you know, we ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's such a difficult question. It's like, <laughs> and I don't think it's a bad question. I think it's a great question because it starts us thinking about what we want to do. And hopefully it would also, we'd also have encouragement to think about more importantly, perhaps how we want to be. And so those questions start start the process and start thinking about it. But I think it's pretty rare for, for people to be asked at eight years old, you know, what do you, what do you want to do or what do you want to be? And they have it all figured out. Yeah. (laughs) It might be, that might be the case. Sometimes I have, I've rather seen that sometimes. And sometimes I've seen, um, like I have a nephew who knew from early, early that he wanted to be a high school science teacher, but he kept getting the message from the grownups around him that, that uh, that that wasn't good enough. You know, this this kid ended up being the valedictorian of his of his high school, and everybody recognized that he was really bright. And so so the message he kept getting was really that's it. That's as far as you're shooting. Why don't you become something better or something bigger or something more powerful or make more money? And so it kind of didn't feel like it was the 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 path that would be most approved of by by the people he was looking up to and. And, um, so he, he didn't even, he kind of shoved that under the rug. I didn't even know he wanted to do that for a long time. And, um, then he, you know, he went to film school and he went to the Peace Corps and he became a nurse and he went to Doctors Without Borders and did all these amazing things. And then he was like, okay, now I'm ready to do what I really wanted to do to begin with, which is be a high school science teacher. And, and lo and behold, he did and he loves it. And, and so sometimes I think we know what we want to do, but then we have this whole circuitous route and then we finally get there. And, and the interesting thing with him is that, of course, I'm talking about him and not me, but we'll get to me. That's okay. <laughs> but, it's a good story. Know, the, the interesting thing with him is he's ended up teaching at a, at a charter school called um, the Doctors School, which focuses on health and, um, and volunteer work. And so, of course, he became a you know, a, a nurse and, and traveled abroad and did tons of volunteer work. And that's all informing his high school science teaching. And um, he wouldn't have, even if he had gone to, to do directly what he wanted to do first, maybe it wouldn't have been as such a rich experience for him as doing these other things that kind of felt obligatory, but he did anyway. So I just, it goes to show, I mean, that I think that we have different paths and lots of things, and we end up maybe with one label or maybe with a few labels, but but what's going to inform and enrich those labels and that experience is a really wide variety of uh, of life experiences and, I suppose, lessons, you could say. 
although I'm not crazy about lessons, that word lessons, because <laughs> sometimes I think, you know, we go through hard times or meandering times and, and you know, we kind of want to condense it into a little high school essay, like what I did with my summer vacation, you know, what I learned from my terrible experiences, <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know that we can, can um, come up with tidy l- little life lessons from, from our meandering past, but I think we do get to a very rich place that is informed by that meandering path. And I guess having, having talked about my nephew, I I would say that the same thing happened to me in a certain way Mm -hmm. that there were, there was a, when I was eight, there was a really, I've shared this story before, but this, it's really important when, um, when looking at how life works for me and how it, how it did for me and, and how I think it works for many of us is, um, well, I'm going to can I, can I meander for a minute? Yes, meander, please meander. Okay. So there's a story that I love and I, I think I, it's, I think it might be from the Bible, but I haven't been able to find where it is in the Bible. But anyway, it's, it's a, it's a great story. And there's a teacher and he asks his disciple to please go. They're out in a, in a village. He asks, asked this woman to please go into town and get him a bag of flour. So she goes into town, she gets the bag of flour, she puts it on her shoulder and she walks back to the village. And what she doesn't realize is there's a little hole in the bottom of the bag and it's, and it's, and flour is dropping out behind her all the way back. So, and it's gradual. So she doesn't notice that the, that the weight is getting lighter on her shoulder and so forth. And she's engaged in her thoughts and she doesn't notice this. So she gets back and she notices that half the bag of flour is gone. And she, she just goes to her guru and she says, Oh, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I didn't notice this and look what happened. And he said, no, 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 this is exactly what I wanted. I, I didn't need the flour. I needed a path that goes from the town to the village for a particular reason that I don't need to explain to you right now because I'm too busy because I'm such an important teacher or whatever. But that's what I needed. And, and I just didn't have the time to explain to you that that's what I needed. And I knew you'd worry about it because that's who you are. And, and I just knew that this would all work out great. So I love that story so much because we think we're doing something. We think we know what we're doing. We think we know what we're about. We think we know what our job is. And at the end of the day, the job could have been something completely different that we had no idea about, but that it's accomplished anyway. And I think this happens in life and when we're sort of living the bliss and creating the bliss and what this is. We, I think that it's pretty rare that we know what we're creating. And the the bliss is something that might be hidden sometimes under discomfort or troubles or tribulations and and we may not always feel the grace we may not always feel the bliss but i think that when we look around us we can see evidence of it even if we don't feel it in our hearts and we don't have that overwhelming feeling of being visited by by grace at any one point along this meandering journey whatever our journey is i think that if we really pay attention we can see evidence of it and that evidence itself is comforting it's like okay i can't really feel the juice right now but i see that it's there i don't really feel like i know what i'm doing but i see that there's evidence that things are falling into place even when they're difficult mm-hmm. and i and i think that's that's been a useful um help for me along the way and i would say that so as an 8 year old girl, seven or eight years old, I got a, I got a, the beginning of my story. And actually my story probably begins a little earlier, but this is good mm-hmm. place as any to start. But I got this letter from my guru who I hadn't met physically yet, but I had written him a letter. I'd heard about him and I knew someone going to India who was going to go see him. And I had them carry a letter and, you know, it was clearly a letter from an eight year old with an eight year old kid's writing. But the letter that came back was not to an eight-year-old. It was to a human being and to a soul. And I really, Beautiful. this letter has informed my life, has enriched my life. And so in this letter, he said a number of things. But one of the things he said is, keep good company. Good company makes a man great. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I'm not sure how much that sunk in as an eight-year-old, but it's sunk in over and over in my life. And I think that it's been the guiding principle in a way. But what happened is I I was very interested in herbs. Even as a kid, I was taught at home for a while. And 
I had a little, I had a little box, a little index box full of photographs of local plants and on the back was written you know where to find them and and recipes to use and medicinal purposes of these plants and I oh, I would spend hours organizing those photographs and and I would go get the plants and enjoy the plants and make things with the plants and and um and then I went to high school and of course all that went away and mm-hmm. all the important things like algebra took its place <laughs> and um and so I went through high school, and it was a, I had a very, very um, fraught childhood. So I was also consumed with life, and and consumed with life questions, and and um, was interested in the big questions of life as well as what I would do and who who I would be in life. And um, you know, this question of who who we who I would be, I was very um, interested in exploring. And at one point after high school, I thought, okay, well, I'll go out and I'll join this great peace march that's starting in California and it's supposed to go across the country and I won't know anybody there. And then I can really be who I am a hundred percent and not be tied down by these ideas of people have of me or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I went out to California and lo and behold, I was the same person. You <laughs> 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 know, it's just, it's, um, I I thought, oh, if I have the complete freedom to be who I really am, I'll be who I really am. And I found that I was the same person. And that was a really interesting find. It was like, okay, all right, I'm going to be me no matter where I go in the world. And I ended up going a lot of places in the world and kind of in the pursuit of medicine and the knowledge of medicine. And Ayurveda was a particularly natural fit for me because I was interested in India and medicine. So therefore, it came together really nicely on a certain level, um, made a lot of sense, but I went to India and literally almost killed myself over the, over the course of a few years, mm. trying to get into a BAMS program there, which is bachelor's of Ayurvedic medicine and surgery. It's the five and a half year program in India. And I was really intent on getting into that, not just learning Ayurveda, but getting into that program right. and getting those initials was important to me and it didn't happen and I'd borrowed money to go there and I just got sick I got hepatitis A and almost mm. died and had to come back to the US and 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 the whole thing was you know all the cards were thrown up in the air and I had no idea cuz I now didn't have the money to go back to India and try again and I also my health was compromised and I just didn't have the spirit for it I'd been trying so hard for a year going all over India for this. It was just so difficult, Nika, and just and everybody else. If you've had difficulties trying to figure out life, oh my God, so have I. And being thwarted, and, having a vision and then you keep it keeps not happening and you're like, wait, so what's the what's the message here? Should I try harder? Should I change routes? Yeah. Yeah. Well one of the things that I think is I think you know, in in Ayurveda, there's there's the pitta dosha, which is this kind of fiery, ambitious, goal driven influence that that is predominant in different people's constitutions, and it was in mine. And definitely, this desire to achieve something, and I had my own idea of what success would be and what that would look like, and uh, really drove after that, ran after that, climbed after that, scrambled after that. And that was an exhausting process to my to my body. And this is one of the things with the pitta dosha, which is which is often prevalent in this kind of um, profile of a human being, is that these kind of people often have very strong intellects and ambitions, but a pretty delicate physical system, and that doesn't that that doesn't naturally hold up to the level of drive that that. Uh, is um, that is being asked of it. So, you know, Pitta people have these really strong minds and they go on forever, but the body is not so strong. But the identification process leads us to think that I'm incredibly strong. Because mm-hmm. why? Because I'm identifying with my mind and not at all with my body. So I think I'm strong, but the reality is, is the physical body is delicate and uh, in Pitta constitutions. So, 
it's it sort of seems to be a life an inherent life lesson for ambitious people often unless they have enough kaffa this kind of stability to to back it up there's sort of a delicacy in the constitution so this i think i see this happen a lot where um as time went on i saw this happen a lot in my private practice mm-hmm. where you know we have a drive and ambition we put that above all else we keep going after it and the body keeps giving us little signs like hey i'm getting a little tired and we're like go oh, shut up you i've got more important things to do than listen to you you know right. push push <laughs> push push and then the bot something really has to break and uh, and usually i think this kind of profile person has to have some kind of life or death experience to to wake us up and say wait a minute I can't sustain this. I need to surrender to the pace of the body some more. And that's a life lesson and it's very very humbling and not something that I was willingly uh interested in doing. So it it had to be kind of forced out of me. Uh, more than once. But anyway, you know, so I went there and tried to do this, you know, tried to get this medicine stuff done and do and and I and it wasn't only ambition. There was also tremendous love of knowledge and curiosity of knowledge and um at a certain point i had to kind of get to that knowledge the limitations of knowledge and what real you know real knowledge is tough to come by i mean the classics tell us that you know there's there's certain valid forms of knowledge and even when we look into those quote unquote valid forms of knowledge and the three main ones they talk about is authority perception and inference and if we look deeply into each one of those we find them all, they all break down authority whether you know if authority the classics when they talk about valid forms of knowledge authority is the first one and it's really ridiculous how they define authority they define authority as someone who knows the past present and future perfectly like well, that, <laughs> okay not <yes>. happening <laughs> Right. So like right. if we're trying to find authority to learn from, how many people do do you know who know the past, present and future perfectly? Nobody. Nobody. It's it, it this is hard to come by. And then they yeah. say, well, you know, in absence of that, you can use scriptures and and um texts and so forth, but those have been altered so many times over the years and and now we don't have living authorities to kind of elucidate what those mean and and unearth the, the secrets of those and so those are kind of cryptic and archaic and anachronistic and and hard to figure out so is that really true authority and then we le- look to to western science but that is hardly evidence based if we see all the vulnerabilities that studies and practices are laced with these days so so that kind of breaks down and and if we look at perception as being one of the valid forms of knowledge we look at our own abilities and perception being so limited what we see and and hear and touch and feel and smell all of how we perceive things mm-hmm. is so limited and so guided by our own experience and past and history and prejudice and so forth so that's limited and and inference you know as as a valenfortum of knowledge that's almost a joke inference right. practically means guess you know? <laughs> probably like, the most valid form we've got but. right you know it's like you make an inference based on the past and the present what's going to happen in the future but it's a guess it's a, it's your best guess so so knowledge you know like when when we're for me you know in my sort of following my bliss at the time i might have said well it's my bliss is knowledge looking for knowledge but that that is so precarious so at some point you know i kind of saw the precarious of net, that and the precariousness of that and that that even that wasn't really likely to give me the fulfillment on a deep soulful level that that i was looking for and that also had to be sort of driven out of me in a certain difficult way and um and it's not to say that this has not been a rich path you know people say oh you, you, ayurveda must be such a passion for you but i think that the passion has sort of changed or shifted with perspective over the years but the thing that has been steady throughout it was was my guru's words to me those all those years ago keep good company good company makes a man great because one of the one of the defining really good influences 
that have been that has been stable from when I was eight years old till now, forty years later, is good company. That that the the interests that I've had and the pursuits that I've followed have led me to study with incredible teachers, work with incredible patients and students and colleagues. And one of the things with Ayurveda is just in this world, everybody seems who's drawn to Ayurveda tends to be curious about knowledge and life, capital L and love, capital L. And it's ended up being really good company for the most part. So, you know, it's a, it's a circuitous way of saying, I mean, there's been all kinds of funny little detours that made no sense at the time, but really enriched what I did later. Um, not unlike my nephew and, um, there's great stories there too, but let me let you get a word in edgewise here, Nigger. No, this is really wonderful because I think life is very much about, I don't know if the word is, but to follow those places of connection and the places of certain core values, certain curiosities that, I mean, when I hear you talk about the level of engagement of the people that you find studying Ayurveda and in the course of your life, I feel that there's a place there when we step outside the conventions of the culture we were brought up in, that we bring a lot of that because we're being driven by that passion. Um, I mean, I think that there are people who go to medical school with some of that, but it's not fostered there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, you know, one of the things with Ayurveda, you know, I think with so many things, the strength is the weakness and the weakness is the strength. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the apparent weaknesses of Ayurveda in the West is that there's no licensing or certification for it. So people who study Ayurveda are jumping off a cliff. And I think this is true with any profession. If you're really doing it from your heart, you go to places that you've never gone or people mm -hmm. have gone before. There's a pioneering spirit you can have no matter what you're doing. But with Ayurveda, you know, I've taught both at Chinese medical schools and Ayurvedic schools, and there's a difference in, in the experience because I think one of the reasons is because um, with Chinese medicine, there's a licensing and a certification, and there's a sense of security, which is false because none of us have security right. but there's a sense of security like oh I'll do this program and then I can either teach or I can open a practice and it'll be covered by insurance and I'll be legit and I'll get clinical experience and and it's this is all true and that's all great but it lends this um staidness to to the classroom like we all know what we're doing and what we're going to do it, of course we don't but there's this illusion that we do because it's legal. Whereas right. with Ayurveda, people are going, you know, to study it and spending thousands of dollars to study it and leaving their homes to do so sometimes. And why? They have no idea. It's not licensed. It's not certified. They don't know what they're going to do with it. They have no, there's so there's this feeling of jumping off a cliff together. And that really enlivens the, the, the teaching a lot. And I think we can get there certainly with Chinese medicine and, and mm -hmm. um, anything, but it does. It is part of um, part of a more con a conscious experience. I think it can be. But I think that this, you know, how how we find how we enliven this, no matter what, whether it's Ayurveda, in, where nobody knows what the heck they're going to do when they get out, right. <laughs> or, or whether it's you know um, going into computer programming, which has to be got you know the most secure job ever, right? <laughs> but, is is the moment to moment jumping off the cliff and i think that this happens truly moment to moment where in this moment like we we don't know what's going to happen later i don't i definitely do not and i think very few of us do have this knowledge that that the vedas talk about you know real knowledge is someone who knows past present and future i mean okay you don't know anybody i've known maybe one person who i think could fit into that category in my life and it's not me 
And um, so I think that most of us, we don't know what the next breath is going to bring. You know, there's a story of Guru Nanak talking with Mardana, his sidekick, and, and he says, Mardana, what can you count on? And Mardana says, well, I, I, I uh, can't count on taking the next breath. Uh, what about you? And Guru Nanak says, I can't even count on being able to release the next, this, this very breath that I'm taking, you know, and if that's a guru, like, well, you know, what do we, we can't count on anything. So there's this minute to minute process of mystery and like, no wonder people, so many people have anxiety. We don't know what's going on from mm -hmm. minute to minute. And, mm -hmm. and I think that there's this, that this is what integrity entails is, is in this very moment being able to um, speak and live and breathe from a place that's connected heart, mind, and soul. And I think this requires us to have practice listening inside ourselves for that integrity and alignment and what that means. And that's guiding the show. So then at any point, it's not like choosing what to do with my life or how to find my bliss. At any point, it's what is right in this moment. And there's moments to act and be active, and there's moments to do nothing and be passive, and there's moments to wait. And these are dictated from within. And once we hear that dictate, then the only question is, do we have the courage to, to follow it? act in line with that? Yeah. And that keeps things lively, boy, I'll tell you. I think that it can be kind of terrifying in a certain way, but there's, but then the moment-to-moment -moment thing is to kind of surrender into that terror, and that kind of melts, and that terror sort of transforms into the opposite, into a safe space and a safe room. Like I remember living in India when I was 18 or 19 and feeling very lonely. I was feeling homesick and um, I had this little book by Rilke, Poets, Letters mm -hmm. to a Young Poet. Mm -hmm. And, some, and some, some one of his letters, he said something that I don't remember exactly, but that my, my visual of it, my, um, yeah, my visual of it was something like this, like, like when you have that loneliness or you, and, and, and I've since felt this, this true about fear as well, or anxiety, when you have that loneliness or fear or anxiety to just make it be a room around you and push those walls out. And this becomes your safe place. Nice. Yeah. It just, there's, I think there's an alchemical transformation that can happen at these moments <coughs> Um, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> there's, I think there's these, you know, moments that, that happen that uh, th th each moment can be kind of terrifying in that jumping off the cliff kind of way. But in the same way, each moment can be this alchemical process of change where that melts into safety and grace over and over again at its best. And, and I think that leads us, you know, if we're like looking for bliss, it's almost like people use the word dharma in the same way. Like, what's my dharma? And mm -hmm. I think they could be saying, what's my bliss? What should I, how can I find that? And I think that we find that minute to minute. And what, what that dictates may or may not make logical sense, may or may not make emotional sense, but it makes, but it, it is the truest path for us. And it's not a path we get to choose and say, oh, this is what I'm going to be later. This is what I'm going to do later. You know, a dharma and a bliss isn't a career. It's a state of being, I think. And, and being in line with that integrity. And when we do that moment to moment, that dharma, that bliss unfolds. It's not something we choose. It chooses us in a sense. And we get to, to witness how how it does that and how it um, works and manifests over time. That's very beautifully said. I really like that minute to minute. I also think that there's, besides the, the terror, that there's 
a sense of exhilaration and curiosity with the anxiety that there's. And I think that there's a part of many human beings that we're, and I think it varies again from person to person, but the quality of risk taking and what, what, they, what different people consider risks, but the exhilaration of risk taking. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's all kinds of emotions that can go with this. There can be mm-hmm. terror or risk or excitement, but underneath all of that is the is is just the important thing is like underneath all of that staying with that gossamer thread right. of whatever that dictate is and and surrendering to any of the emotions that come up, whether it's terror or excitement. I mean, a lot, I can't tell you how many times I have been asked when I'm about to go on a trip, (laughs) you know, for work, are you excited? And excited is almost never the word, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. might've been when I was younger, but now maybe traveling takes a lot out of me or whatever. It's, it's almost never excitement, but I know that it is for some. And but whatever it is for me is like staying underneath that because all because if it's, if we're excited or afraid we're excited about something or afraid of something that isn't even real it's something that hasn't even happened yet it's right. something that we are creating a story that we're excited by or scared by but it's but neither one is real yet right and Exactly. And to be in that moment and to be with whatever it is that's happening in that moment and aware of whatever it is that, that we're aware of is, shapes our lives. Yeah. Yeah. In, those, yeah. in those instants. Yeah. And staying with that, you know, I'm reminded of this picture that my niece, who is now one of my nieces, who is now 22, when she was six, drew this beautiful picture and she brought it to me and I said, Oh, this is amazing. Can you explain it to me? And she did. And the picture was of four flowers and each of these flowers had a thought bubble and the, the, each of the thought bubbles were the same, right? You know, the Mm -hmm. little thought bubbles like, and the, the thought bubbles for them all were the same, which is that they had hair. All right. Mm-hmm. So flowers with hair. And the on the four flowers, two of them were happy and two of them were sad, like happy faces, mm-hmm. sad faces. And I said, well, you know, what can you explain this? And she said, yes, all these flowers think that they have hair and these two are happy because they want hair and these two are unhappy because they don't want hair. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is just brilliant. This is Amazing. life. because. Yeah. You know, we all have this idea of who we are or who we're going to become or, or what what we're doing, and none of it's real. And we're either happy about it or sad about it, but it's not real. Exactly. It's the story, and, and we can change it. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me, and it's fascinating how resistant we are to that. Yeah, yeah. And I think well, that goes back to the keeping of good company um, because I think that, and I think there's such a tie into wellness, the choice oh, to yeah. keep good company, which I also think includes being good company. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's actually a, a topic, Nika, quite close to my heart at the mm-hmm. moment because this book, you know, Becoming the Medicine We Practice is this fairly new book. It came out in August and it took me about a year to write it and a year for the publication process. So for two years was kind of thinking about this, um, this business of becoming medicine, you know, Mm -hmm. which is actually what I wanted the title to be, but it ended up being the subtitle and that's fine. Um, you know, I think we all have a medicinal or a poisonous or a neutral effect on everybody and everything around us. And, you know, in terms of wellness, we're often pursuing uh, remedies, whether they're pharmaceutical or, or herbal or um, otherwise, we're pursuing external remedies to, to cure our ills, which is just fine. I really appreciate that. And I'm so grateful to these remedies that they exist and for these remedies. But I think often we are looking to to 
to external forms of science and remedy at the exclusion of of the art of science and, mm-hmm. and really developing the art of science. And when we look at what that means, um, you know, we can, if we look at what has really transformed us in our own lives, well, for example, I, I had a woman tell, you know, tell me a couple months ago, oh, <clears throat> I went to see this physician and, and um, he asked, and I told him about my daughter who was having trouble and he looked at me so deeply with such love and it was a transformative experience in my life and i said what happened to your daughter and she said well it got better the whole thing got better mm. and th- this was no remedy there was no herbs there was no prescription it was just this physician had the ability to look into her heart and look at her with love and listen to her and perceive and this woman felt deeply heard and deeply listened to and that was transformative and so in terms of wellness and good company, absolutely, I think that this is part of wellness. And it's not the exclusive domain of healthcare practitioners. This is what we all get to experience is, is the ability in ourselves to, to find the poison and to find the medicine and, fi- and, and choose which to cultivate mm-hmm. and how to cultivate that. And we can choose to be around people who are medicine to us, you know, and, and, God willing, at some point, we will also be medicine to others, and maybe we already are, to, and we don't even know it. But to, 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 to learn how to sort of consciously cultivate this is something I think um, is a worthwhile endeavor. I think so, and I think it can be very much a thread of life and how you stay attached to that Glossomer thread. It also strikes me as that may be a large piece of what they call the placebo effect, which I was always fascinated by, even though they dismissed it because doctors said they couldn't understand it. But if something works at least 50% of the time, there's got to be something going on. Yeah. Because most medicines don't work 50% of the time. Exactly. So, you know, let's go it like, you know, we all want that transformative experience in health and whether we're a practitioner or a patient that experience of of profound transformation is profound for mm-hmm. for for both practitioner and patient if that experience is profound and it's something we're all looking for but it's something that we don't really want to talk about because it sounds kind of gauche it's like talking about a picasso and explaining why it's good it's as soon as you start to explain why that piece of art is good you start sounding lofty and divorced from reality and woo woo and all this stuff but i think it's worth kind of teasing out from our subconscious or unconscious what's happening at those moments and looking at that a little bit and feeding that some attention and then when that goes back to the unconscious or subconscious hopefully it goes back in a little bit better shape and and we're able to to use this a little bit more consciously to to heal each other and and ourselves well and i think very often illness or imbalance is is a part of ourselves trying to get our attention it's like the body saying to the pita part of you, excuse me, would you please slow down? <laughs> right. And, and that having, if we can, because, and I think that we are so important to one another. And I don't just mean human beings, but human beings specifically are very important to one another. And to have somebody say to all parts of you, your body, your unconscious, your subconscious, I'm listening, shifts reality. I agree. I agree 100%. And, you know, and not only with each other as human beings, but with animals and plants as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we, we can practice this kind of full body listening, you know. Talk about this in, the, in, the, in this most recent book, you know, this the the relationship of perception we talked about it earlier actually in terms of knowledge you know being mm-hmm. the valid forms of knowledge but 
I think even though it has its limitations, it, it is an incredibly valid form of knowledge to cultivate because we can kind of try to work past our limitations and our limitations might m mean that we've, we've created division between me and, and this other person because of religious differences or political differences or um, which sports team we like or whatever that is creating the supposed difference if we can kind of look past that limitation of perception and and look a little more deeply here a little bit more deeply this is something that I, th I think that we can learn and that we can learn not only with human beings again but with with plants and with our external world it's not really that you know we are in nature and we're participating with nature. We are nature, you know, right. so, you know, it's not like me plus the seasons. It's, I am part of the seasons. I am part of the, the, um, I am part of nature. It's not like nature's out there and then there's me. No, um, we are ch children of, and, and parents of, of all that is. I mean, that's, because it's not separate. We perceive them as separate. We have this capacity to understand things by separating them out. But, right. Um, so we looked at, you know, perception in terms of knowledge, but also the role of perception in terms of compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. One of the things that struck me in writing this book was Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion <clears throat> in, in China. The, her name translates as, as either one who sees and hears the cries of the world or one who hears the cries of the world or my favorite, one who perceives the suffering of the world or the cries of the world. And it's like, that's compassion then. You know, that's the, right. the ability to perceive the suffering, the ability to perceive the reality, the ability to perceive reality without the limitations that we're generally putting on it all the time that's something i think we can cultivate and to the extent that we can is the extent that that compassion enters the picture or empathy enters the picture you know <clears throat> compassion is this funny word like i feel like it's almost a patronizing word often like if if you're happy for someone you say oh i'm so happy for you but if they've been um struck with some calamity you don't say ah i feel compassion for you you know that's sort of a lofty patronizing right. sort of you know it's not like something i can like point at you and bestow upon you i think it's it's more like a room a space that that i choose to enter you know if if i'm seeing suffering in some way it's it's not like oh i over here in my perfection bestow compassion upon the you poor suffering being you know it's mm -hmm. more like let's just enter this space of compassion together and let's be there together because we all need it. And it may be as um, not turning away from or blaming what right. we're perceiving, not shutting it out, but just being willing to hold the space for it. Yeah, I, and, think that's, yeah. I think that's really wise and true. And you know, you said earlier, you were wondering why we have resistance to what we have resistance to. Mm -hmm. if it's our moment of bliss or whatever and i think i think in a certain way we have resistance to something because we don't think it makes sense or it doesn't fit with our picture of reality but when we remember that we have such a limited perceptive ability for capital r reality it it's humbling mm -hmm. and it'll and that and that allows us not to think that we know what's going on and that we can just enter that space with more receptivity rather than resistance. And, and to ask ourselves to allow that greater reality to just aware, to, to be aware of it, to say, maybe I don't know. <laughs> right. Maybe right. the patterns I'm looking at here, you know, and I think this very often happens in science, you know, well, I'm looking for this particular pattern, you know, a, a, a visual example, red dots on a blue page, so I'm ignoring everything else. Right. And you suddenly realize that you've been seeing 45 pages of green leaves, and you're like, oh, well, what am I looking at? Uh, I'm not seeing the, the blue page with red dots, but what am I seeing? Right. And I find 
when I feel off track, that very much stepping back into my heart and saying, well, what am I seeing? It will shift um, will shift me into a state of centeredness and, and ability to move like that, that Aikido sense where you can move in any direction because you're centered. Yeah, As yeah. As opposed to being about to fall on your face because you're leaning so far forward. <laughs> I, I practiced Aikido for about three years, uh, and I, I, I love that. I, you know, and it's not a, one of the things that I um, loved about it was you, you never try to meet resistance with resistance. You just melt and you start going, moving in the same direction as, as the force, and then, then you can shift that, then you can shift and it's so interesting when we do that, when we go with. That's um, fascinating to me, and how often we resist it. It's an interesting pattern. Maybe it's just one of my patterns, but I think maybe other people do that as well. Well, I, re- I really, you know, I really love what you what you just said. You know, in terms of get when we get to that resistance to ju- just to ask ask ourselves, what am I seeing? You know, stop trying to conclude. Just just um, start asking, you know, what am I seeing? What is there to be seen? So it, this subtitle, Becoming the Medicine We Practice, is that for, for all of us? Is yes. Is it written for practitioners? So how do we as um, people who go to practitioners, how do we become the medicine we practice? And what would we be practicing? What would we be doing there? And so what, you know, what you're, that category is everybody, because practitioners go see practitioners. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so that role, maybe. Of... One thing I would say, and, uh, you know, is, is uh, please read the book, because it's so, it, it's, it's not just for practitioners of healthcare. I mean, that was the niche that, mm-hmm. you know, that we picked, and it's a small niche, and, but, um, but it, but I, but I really wrote it with everybody in mind, and an, I no longer am in a private practice mm-hmm. and I found that it changed my life to to write this book and to because of the meditations on each of uh, of these um well on each of these subjects that are in the book and the book is written um in six parts and the first four parts are one each devoted to each of the four qualities that um, Ayurvedic classics, ancient sages said that that practitioners needed to be effective. Mm-hmm. So one is excellence in theoretical knowledge. We talked about knowledge a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. One is lots of practice. Mm-hmm. One is dexterity, which is kind of curious, and one mm-hmm. is purity. Mm-hmm. And so those are the four qualities that that Charaka and um, Vagbhat, these ancient Ayurvedic teachers told us we needed to cultivate in order to be effective practitioners. So the first four parts of the book, I go into each one of those qualities and really like spelunking into them, you know, really exploring. And they really apply to everybody. And we're all practitioners to a degree, uh, you know, if whether we're parents and we're trying to keep our kids healthy or whether we're trying to keep ourselves healthy or whether we're trying to have healthy families and communities no matter what our role is in them um to a certain degree i think we all need to be healthcare practitioners to restore health to the planet and our communities and our families mm-hmm. and ourselves um and so i, I you know so so there's lot there's lots of rich little parts to me that um that apply to to all of us. And then the other parts there's two more parts. <laughs> so the other so the fifth part is actually devoted to the four qualities that these ancient sages say are important for medicine. And so in this in this fifth part I try to apply what we're doing with each other as human beings to to how we interact with plants and the plant world and the plant kingdom and why that matters. Oh, and, you know, for for one thing, if if we believe in evolution, 
And we have to believe that if we are treating our plants poorly, they will have to evolve to become less hospitable to us. That's wonderful. I had never thought of that, but I love that. Yes, they will respond. Right? In the sense that, you know, like in acacia trees, for example, if a, if a deer starts chewing on the acacia tree, then the acacia tree takes that as a threat and releases a chemical component that affects all the other acacia trees in the neighborhood, and they all change their chemistry accordingly to be less hospitable to the deer. Mm-hmm. So that's just one very small example. But this, if, if, if we are not treating plants with kindness and care, and if we're being violent to them in some way or another, then their, their nature, their chemistry is going to change. And the, the classics in, in Ayurveda talk about how over millennia the, the, our plants are becoming weaker. The qualities of our plants are becoming weaker. The energetics of them and the vitality are becoming weaker because of how we're interacting with them. So mm. applying to the plant world what we're doing with each other is, is, is part five. And part six is just very, very small part talking about compassion and kind of looking at some of what we talked about here today. Wow. And I think that that if we bring that into that into each moment of our life, I think this has been the best description of how I understand creating our bliss to be because we are just being who we are and moving into a space where we stop interfering with what we're here to do. That's yeah, and stop interfering with the bliss. Yes. You know, because the bliss is already created. We're not creating it. We we're just we just need to melt our resistance to it, right? Yes. Yeah, and and be it <clears throat> and not think it's other than us. Right. But as we go through our daily practice of life to have that, whatever that gossamer thread is, be, be the core. And it's very interesting. So I, I understand we have a few more minutes. And I understand you work and teach a lot. And so how do you implement these things? How, what, is, what are some ways that you move groups Let's talk a little bit about that back into wellness. Well, or honor the, the wellness that, in a group. You no, know, truly the way that I integrate this in my life is what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the minute to minute what is called for right now mm-hmm. from my heart of hearts what is called for right now. And so to me truly moving with a group of people it's profound in the same way that it can be profound to be alone in my room because it's the same process for me it's the it's 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 going into you know I really don't feel like we create the bliss I feel like we can melt into it Mm -hmm. and we can jump into it and we can jump off that cliff into the bliss over over and over and over again and that's the minute to minute to minute process. And um, so aligning myself with that inner clarity, that inner knowing at the beginning of working with um, any group of, of people, I try to sit and ac- acknowledge all of us in the room and then bring my lineage into it, bring my guru and his guru and his guru and <clears throat> whoever else is in the neighborhood who feels like <laughs> to to come be there and that alignment is crucial to me to um to be able to sort of have a free flow with this minute to minute process and partly not having any idea where we're going to go with a lecture or a class or um is is my favorite way to do it because um, I mean, off, sometimes we have to have a syllabus and go with that, but within that structure to really stay with this ever new moment, this, this alignment with the heart and mind and words 
we so there's this always this element of newness, right? Because we don't know where we're going to go exactly. Even if we have a syllabus, we don't know where we're going to go, how we're going to get there together. And and this this newness is an adventure, and it it is and it is a mystery. And there there is grace and there is bliss in it. I think when there's sort of a lift off that can happen with a group mm-hmm. when we're all focused in the same direction we're all feeding the same direction and that's that's just a, that's just wonderful that's wonderful oh, that's beautiful and there is something you know how jesus said where two or more are gathered together in my name there i am i always thought that was interesting because there does seem sometimes to be a, a lift off that can happen in this really amazing way easier with a group of people even if that group is just two people than if it's just one person i mean there's 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 a, there is a sort of a it's there's sort of this magic in terms of being able to witness the divine in the other and in the process that um happens a little more easily than when you're alone in the room meditating, which is a different experience. That's really wonderful. And to do it <clears throat> consciously with people, you know, where, where you set that, I think is one of our great tools. <clears throat> I used to, when I moved from New Mexico to New York, I used to ride the subways and I would cope with being on the subways. I'd look around and I'd think, what if these people were people I loved? What if they were my aunts, my siblings? my dear friends, how would it feel to be on this train as opposed to with all these strangers with their intense stories? And it was such an interesting um, experience to move into there and think, wow, how would I feel differently if these were people that I cared about? Yeah, and again, you're sort of, in a way, going back to, to the question, I think, I forget how you put it, but um, what is there to see here? Yes. You know, yeah. go, uh, you know, going back, and that sort of seems to be a th- theme in our conversation here to me is just kind of going back to um, whether you call it beginner's mind or whatever, mm-hmm. but going back to what is there to see here? What you know, what is there to perceive here? How, what is what is reality here? And h- how fully can I? perceive this and with how few limitations and uh can i just melt away the resistance by by being curious by being interested in what the reality is not what my idea of the reality is mm-hmm. and maybe i'm hearing you say you know Kuan yin being she who perceives maybe moving to that place of compassion right. of just seeing what's there right Right, and it's not like we have to say, okay, how can I get compassionate? And the question is more, because that can lead us to, to, to become right. jerks, right? Right, right, <laughs> like, right. Now I'm condescending, right. But if the question can be, how can I perceive? I know, I know that I'm not perceiving the whole reality here. How can I, let, let me just perceive as much as I can. Let me just sit and perceive without judging and without um, criticizing and without defining and without division. But how can I just, how can I more deeply see, hear, feel what's, what the reality is here? Mm-hmm. And it sounds it's like perception, like perception. is... Again, Again, we are, we are in it. it. It's not like you were talking about nature and nature is there and we're here that we... That's right. Because we're, we're, so we're perceiving, you know, on the subway or whatever, we're perceiving not only the people, but the main thing we're perceiving is what's, what's happening in ourselves and, mm-hmm. and um, ha- how is this whole fabric of reality, um, how can we, how are we seeing this fabric of reality that includes us very much so, you know, our own, um, when we, when we feel what's happening in our bodies, I think often we're feeling the energetic body, not the physical body. You know, we may not yes. be feeling the organs and we're feeling the energy inside. We're feeling, you know, some one place feels tight and stuck and another place feels kind of loose and good and, and, you know, when I'm in those situations in the subway or or something like that, and I'm trying to perceive reality in a more whole way, I often start with looking into my own, uh, you know, kind of 
whether or not I open my eyes or close my eyes physically, mm -hmm. kind of awakening the internal sensory apparatus and feeling as a whole what's happening in, in my body. And, and in terms of my body, I don't mean the Anamaya Kosha, the physical body, so much as the Pranamaya Kosha, the, the, the energetic body, you know, mm -hmm. what's, where, where am I clenching and, and, and just releasing those, dissolving those, breathing into those and letting those, letting the energy flow a little more smoothly. And then, and then seeing how that shifts my experience of connection to, to reality, quote unquote, outside me as well as inside me. And it ends up being a more homogenous experience. Well, that sounds like becoming the medicine we practice. I think we've run out of time here. I want to thank you very much, Dr. Claudia Welch. Our website is drclaudiawelch.com. The book is How the Art of Medicine Makes the Science More Effective, Becoming the Medicine We Practice. And is there anything you'd like to say to close? Thank you so much for joining us and sharing this. It's, it's very profound. And, um, and well, it's been just a, a lovely meandering um, exercise in, in, uh, in merging with this, this uh, bliss and this grace. So mm -hmm. thank you for the opportunity. Wonderful. Thank you so much. My joy. Thank you.